I would go on the freeway at 100 miles an hour and just hoping that my car would go off the cliff somewhere or skid or just crash. I just didn't want to deal with the pain anymore. Welcome to The Depression Files, where we talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. We educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. All right, good evening. Welcome to The Depression Files. I want to welcome Daniel Garza to the show. Daniel is an HIV advocate, a public speaker, and a podcaster. Daniel, welcome to the show. Hi, Al. Thank you. Hey, I'm so glad to have the opportunity to interview you. Um, I know we met just this last, uh, just like a few months ago, wasn't it? Last April, I think, at uh, Healthy Voices Conference. It seems like forever, but it's not forever. It does seem like quite a long time ago. Yeah, so that was fantastic. And um, I had the opportunity to meet you and also to help out with one of your sessions that you gave. Um, I think you spoke several times throughout that long uh, weekend or throughout that conference. And one of the sessions you gave was actually on podcasting. And I got to help out and assist and meet you through that work. I feel very lucky to have met you. No, I'm... you know, when, when we were putting together the the podcasting session, uh, there was a lot of discussion about how to do it, how to make it work, what would be the best way. And the only two actual podcasters that I had uh, that I knew that would be there were uh, Gay Howard and Robert Brain, and then you and Amber names came up which I did not know personally and once I went in and stopped you guys I was really impressed with all the work that you guys were doing so I'm thankful for you uh for your presence there it was so first of all it was well received second you're so knowledgeable and personable so thank you for being part of it oh thank you yeah, that was fantastic. And, you know, the the year before, I had actually been at the conference as well, and I was surprised there wasn't a single session on podcasting. So to hear that you were doing one on podcasting really got me um, excited to be a part of it. And it was ironic enough that after that first time I was at the conference, I walked out of there with this idea of, I'm going to create a podcast, even though there weren't any sessions on podcasting. But, uh, yeah, I was really glad that that session was even being offered. So kudos again to you. It was, a, it was a hard push. And just to finish that, it was a hard push. They weren't sure they wanted it. But uh, again, in part to you, we, it was one of the best sessions of the, of the conference. So thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And just a, a quick little plug for Janssen, who's uh, a part of Johnson & Johnson, the pharmaceutical company who does the Healthy Voices Conference, which is... Um, for online advocates of chronic illnesses of all types. So an incredible conference. That's how they give back to the community. And what an amazing conference where us online advocates get to meet each other in person, share ideas, and uh, it's an incredible conference. Yes, definitely. So I know 
you uh, mentioned that you have dealt with depression since you were quite young. Yeah. Um, depression runs in the family. Uh, several members of my family have dealt with it in their own time. Um, but I think being a Hispanic family, uh, the culture just doesn't allow for depression. They're, you're not allowed to be depressed. Not it's allowed not, to talk about it. Right. It's not real. It doesn't happen. You just need to occupy your mind or go to church or get a job. <laughs> there's there's no such thing as depression. And is that so how I, your family dealt with it as well? They just didn't talk about it? Right, definitely. Because you could... Uh, growing now as an adult, I can look back and think about... And, and the only person I, person I will put out there is my mom. Um, I Now as a grown-up, I can look back and look at my mom while I was younger and pinpoint stages of her life where she was depressed, where she was anxious, um, where things were just not working out for her and she didn't know how to deal with it. Uh, luckily, when I was very, probably my teens, I was probably about 15, my parents bought land in Mexico for when they retired and that was her escape. So she would take her vacation time and just basically run away to the ranch and get away from everybody. And that was her therapy. Right. Uh, but she was never, you know, my mom is almost 90 now. No, she's 90 now. Wow. And uh, she grew up in an era where, in a time when you just, it, it wasn't part of life. Depression was not part of life. It didn't happen. Uh, do you think she shared about her depression with anybody, your dad or, or a close friend or anybody? Um, I think her and my, uh, I think her and my aunts would talk about it because my aunts, her sisters went through it too. Uh, I, you know, I, I hope she had an outlet. Right. I really do hope because uh, I have found one. And I know how valuable it is for me that I, my mom has Alzheimer's now. Uh, and this is going to sound ridiculous and silly, but I think this is her escape now uh, because she has managed to, she's in the later stages of Alzheimer's, but during the, uh, the last several years, she was always very happy. She was always very, she smiled, uh, I think she went back to a time when uh, depression wasn't a part of her understanding. Right. I think her, her, her spirit allowed her to go back to a time when she was always happy. Because up until a couple of years ago when the Alzheimer's got really heavy, uh, she was always happy, always smiling. Yeah, I don't think that sounds silly at all. And I've heard that from others who have a relative who's in the midst of Alzheimer's who say, you know, they, they seem really happy and they're kind yeah. of cherishing that piece of the illness. Yeah, so it's nice to see that my mom found that inner peace that she always wanted. Yeah, that sounds really, really nice. So when when would you say you first experienced depression? Looking back, I think coming out, um, being gay, 
my sexuality. But I, I believe like a lot of other gay men, when you're first, let me rephrase that, a lot of gay men who suffer from depression, I think that I hid it or didn't realize it was depression because I thought I was just dealing with coming out. Right. And finding out my sexuality and not, especially as a Hispanic man, not being able to express myself, not be able to tap into my sexuality the way I want it, that I began to be a secret. Um, everything seemed dirty, ungodly. So I think that I, I thought, oh, I just feel sad because I can't be who I want to be. Right. How old were you when you came out? Um, I was. I finally came out when I was seventeen, but I knew about me and I was dating since a lot younger than that. I was about thirteen years old when I had my first uh, sexual encounter, and uh, after that, it just I just lived in the sadness, thinking, "Oh, I'm just sad because I can't be who I want to be." Do you think? Um... Were you concerned about how your family would handle it? And were you concerned oh, yeah. about the church or, or the Hispanic community uh, or all of it? Uh, I think first and foremost, my family. I just didn't know. I'm the youngest of three. I'm the only boy. Uh, very conservative Hispanic family. Uh, so, yeah. Kind of the family is the doorway to everything else. Right. So somebody in your family knows, and it just kind of spreads. Um, so yeah, the, the family was the first thing, and then uh, realizing that once that came out, it would be out. Right. So be- um, before you shared with your family, so from like age 13, you said you, you had your first sexual encounter, which is young for gay or heterosexual in my right. eyes. Um, but so since age 13, you knew, and... You just kind of hit it from everybody until you were 17? Right. And then when wow. I was 17, I was outed. So my family found out, not by me. Right. And so after that, there were a couple of years where there was a little distance between me and my sisters. And there was obviously a lot of readjusting between me and my parents. Uh, so for those couple of years, I... It, I kind of felt like, oh, it's normal that I feel sad now because I'm going through all these changes. Right. So so you don't identify depression at yeah, that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I want to jump back a little bit because you kind of glossed over this period from 13 to 17 where you were hiding this and it sounds like it was a really challenging time and it make you made it sound like you were experiencing depression at that time. What did your depression look like from 13 to 17? Um, I would, I would, I would isolate quite a bit. I was, here's where that, um, you know how they say that they're functioning alcoholics. Yeah. Uh, I was an, a functioning depressive, I guess. Right. If that is, if that is a term or if we've just created a new term here. Yeah. Well, I think uh, I've heard the term high functioning depression. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, I was still popular in school. I was still pretty active in a lot of uh, activities. Uh, 
I was a dancer. I was part of different sports teams. I never played sports, but I was part of the teams. Uh, <laughs> I was part of the student body. I, I was very active. And, and to this day, I put myself in active positions so that I don't isolate. So I have an excuse to have to get out of the house. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. But if I didn't have anything to do, I would. I would be in my bedroom. I would be listening to usually, and I still do that too, depressive music. I would sleep a lot. Um, that was a big thing. And then still to, to today, when things just get really overwhelming, uh, my brain goes to sleep. Mm. Uh, I want to just I lay on the couch, I make a, uh, a nest out of pillows, and I hide. And right. that's just a, a good way. But during 13 to 17, um, I, again, I was in that point of my life where I didn't understand if I was sad because of the situation that I was in, or I was just sad. Um, so I tried to stay active, and I didn't want to give my family any more reasons to ask me questions. Because I would get the, why don't you have a girlfriend? Right. Or are you seeing anybody? Or um, lots of just pressure questions for a young gay man. It's like, I don't want to talk about this. Do you so think your family had suspicions that you were gay? Oh, totally. Okay. Yeah. But never yeah. but never crossed that topic. Yeah. it was. Um, in fact, side story is that when my mom found out, um, she wasn't upset that I was gay. She was upset that I never trusted her enough to confess. Okay. Uh, she was more upset that for many, many years she had come up to me and said, Hey, is there anything you want to tell me? And I would say, No, no. And she's like, Do you like boys? I'm like, Mom, come on. No, um, you know, I'm, I'm super popular. Look at me. I'm adorable. How can I be gay? Right. And so I thought that a lot of my sadness was because I was lying to my mom. So I, I think that's one of the things. I always found an excuse for me being sad or being unmotivated or isolating. There was always an excuse. There was always some outside purpose, something on the outside that made it happen. It was never inside. Does that make right. sense? Yeah, absolutely. I could see how, you know, it sounds like your mother really loves you. And I could see how you knowing that you were lying to her could add to your depression, certainly. Right. And you could beat yourself yeah. up about it, um, oh, especially yeah. so, when you're in a depressive state. Right. So I, I learned from very early on that no matter how I felt inside, on the outside, it was everything is great. Everything is good. Um, keep the stress to yourself. Don't let anybody know what's going on. Mask it. Handle, handle the situation the best you can. Right. And which we can talk about at a certain point, which also leads to addictions, mm -hmm. um, which for me was drinking very young. I was in my young, in my mid teens when I started drinking. Uh, and it was the occasional sneak a beer from the fridge or there's a bottle of bourbon or 
know, rum, what's popular in my house, um, and just sneak a drink and calm the nerves down. And, um, and that made it better. Because then anybody who knows, as long as your inhibitions are down, it's this other persona that comes out and takes over. And I wanted that person to come out because I was just always hurting. I always felt like I was hurting. And, and I think that was the other thing is like uh, questioning myself. It's like how, as a teen, it's like, how is it possible that I am popular? I get invited to all these parties. I'm always around friends. I'm always active. How is it that I'm sad? Like I, my parents lived in the States. I lived in Mexico during junior high and high school. So they would send me money. I could always buy everything I wanted. I never went without. Like I felt like in the eyes of God, I was very blessed. And I should be very grateful for everything I had. But why am I feeling sad? Like why am I sad? Like why am I hurting? Like it didn't compute. But much like physical pain, um, you learn to just deal with it. You know, anybody who has arthritis, who's never pain-free, that becomes your standard. So from my standard from like 13 to late in my 30s was I'm always going to be sad inside. You just deal with it. Right. So that was kind of your baseline. You were just... Yeah. No, no matter... Yeah, no matter... And I'm sure people listening can probably relate to it. It's like you look around, you're like, like, for instance, my life now, I live in Laguna Beach. I have a nice apartment just walking distance from the beach. I have an awesome boyfriend, a family that loves me and is supportive. I have an amazing group of friends. I'm on social media. I get invited to things. I present. I public speak. I have a nice car. There's food in the pantry. Like, on paper, everything is awesome. Everything is awesome. But then, at the end of the day, I can sit down and one thing is off. And and in my head and in my heart, and that's one thing I never understood. My heart goes along with it, my spirit. One thing is off, and I feel like the whole world's coming to an end. Like... I've done everything wrong. I don't see the purpose for me existing because nothing that I do is correct. Uh, if I'm overlooked for a presentation or if I'm not needed at an event or I don't get accepted for a conference, like what good is my life? Like what am I doing with my life? Like, so, you how- know, it, it's really interesting. I think, you know, a couple of things that you say I want to point out, like, first of all, when everything seems to be going right, right? Like you were talking about your parents love you, your family loves you, you were doing well in school, you had a ton of friends. And I think then when you're dealing with depression, those become another reason to beat yourself up, right? Like you acknowledge, like, I should be happy. Why the hell am I depressed? And then you beat yourself up more because you're not feeling happy. And, yeah. and it turns into a vicious circle. And the same thing when you mention, like, if you happen to get overlooked for a presentation, there are probably a lot of reasons that may have happened. Maybe they were looking for a straight white male. Maybe they were looking for a female, right? But in your head, it goes to, oh, I suck. They didn't want me. Yeah. They don't like my work. They don't like who I am. I'm awful. Why am I doing this? 
right? And yeah. that, that's where yeah. I don't know if you're still getting any kind of therapy, but those are the pieces I think of for CBT, the cognitive behavioral therapy, where you can stop those negative thoughts and just say, wait a minute, what do I have to prove that I'm not a good person? I do all this advocacy work. I get invited to conferences. I do many presentations. So what kind of evidence do I have that says I'm not a good person or I'm not a good advocate, right? Right. And that is one thing I started. I'm not great at writing every day. I, I'll, I'll forget. And then a month goes by. And I'm like, oh, crap, I haven't written anything. Um, but I become a social media journaler. And I think that's one th- a term that we can start saying. I'm a social media journaler and not just about posting random stuff. It's like, here's a picture of an event that I was at. Here's a picture of where I went. Here's a picture of me having a good time. Here is a post here on my calendar. I write everything in my calendar and I, I make sure to save those so that when one thing is not there, I can remember, I can go back and look at my calendar and go, but wait a minute, look at everything you did this month. Think about it. Like, yeah. why would people want you around? People are looking for you to, you know, fill in the blank. Yeah. And so you're not horrible. Um, I don't have to call my boyfriend all the time and be like, oh, my life is crap. I, and, have, <laughs> right. and have him walk me off the, the eternal cliff. Um I can look on my photo albums online and go, oh, wow, like this month has been incredible. So maybe it's okay that they didn't pick you for this particular thing. Maybe it's okay that you didn't get the call. Um, That's cool. That sounds like you've set up kind of a structure for yourself or one of the tools in your tool belt to make sure that if you're having a tough day, you know one of the ways that will help you. Yeah, and, and you know what? we I think... For kind of to put it all in, in, in perspective, I'm 47 now. I'll be 48 this December. Um, I was diagnosed. Well, I came out when I was 17, but I also had um, uh, I was sexually abused as a child, uh, and then I finally realized that having sex at 13 was not all my idea. Like that, there was people involved in there who could have stop the situation okay right. so regardless of how i think about myself um i was not an adult i did not have full consent of my feelings or emotions right to allow that to happen so um that that added to my stress for many years but uh did you were you able to share that with anybody um i i have as an adult okay yeah but, but you were holding it in at the time, which certainly yeah. added to the depression, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, because for many years, I thought it was my fault. I, right. I did that. I was I was a curious kid. I was promiscuous. Um, everything that happened was my fault. Right. And going to therapy allowed me to uh, get to the point that, yes, I was a curious child. I was, I knew what I wanted sexually, but the adults that were involved in that situation could have said no. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you, you figured that out as an adult. And I think, you know, most 13 year olds and middle schoolers get curious, 
right? And yeah. and adults need to be the adult in the picture and not take advantage of kids' curiosities. Exactly. There's there's always that's why we're the adults to right. say you know that it's not that that you're not at the right age for that. Right. So uh, going through sexual uh, discovery, let's put it that way, uh, alcoholism from very young. Coming out at 17, being diagnosed with AIDS at 30, anal cancer at 45, uh, a stoma at 46, and now being diagnosed with diabetes at 47. Uh, almost every chapter of my life has been painted with some level of stress. Right. Uh, some level of, uh, oh, and drug addiction. I got sober and... and 2007. Uh, so um, most of my life has been painted with some brush of stress, anxiety, uh, put downs, right? Uh, let downs, not just from other people, but from myself. Uh-huh. Uh, You've been through a lot. Yeah. So you add to the anxiety and depression, um, health related post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, just because my body has been through so much, <sighs> man. Just saying it out loud gets me like, oh. Well, your heart. body's been through a lot, but I mean, obviously, the PTSD is acknowledging that your mind's been through a lot to deal with that. Right. So every time the body changes, your mind has to adapt to a new way of living. Yeah. Uh, even going into rehab and getting sober—that's a mind-altering situation because yeah, you're getting. Yeah, yeah. Letting you're letting go of a comfort zone as harmful as it was. It was still a comfort zone. Oh yeah. An unhealthy uh, comfort zone, but it, it certainly took the edge off. Yeah. It sounds like for a while. Right. For lack of better, it was my abuser and I was, I was attached to that relationship. Right. Um, so, you know, I want to jump back a little bit again. You keep rushing sure. us way ahead. <laughs> Um, no, no problem at all. But, you know, you mentioned just, you touched on that you were outed at age 17. So can you tell us about that? What happened that made it so you were outed rather than you being able to share with your family when you felt the time was right? Um, there was an, I was about 17 going into 18. Um, and there was a there was a teenage summer moment, summer fling with uh, another boy, and uh, we were seen. Uh, it started the story started spreading. It got to my family, and uh, as much as I hate cliches, it actually did happen over a Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, <laughs> but I wasn't. Uh, fortunate enough to sit there and go, well, nice turkey. And by the way, I'm gay. Uh, my uh, my brother-in-laws actually came up to me and said, hey, we, we heard this. What's going on? But of course, much like gossip, by the time it got to my family, I was basically, uh, I was basically prostituting myself uh, and putting out to anybody who was available and I was like, no, that's not what happened. Uh, I think the sad part was that because there was already an idea that I was gay, 
and the other person was not, all the blame and all the pressure was put on me. Oh, right. It was my fault. It was my fault. I did it. I instigated. I started. I, and it wasn't the case. So I, I think that, you know how there's always that trigger time? I think that was the trigger that made me feel like I'm unwanted. I'm not loved. Uh, nobody cares about my feelings. Uh, my family does not have my support. So if I ran away or just died, nobody would care. Wow. And I think that planted the seed for a long time that every time something bad happened and I seemed to be at the blame of it, especially when I started doing drugs at 20, I started, it, it was really right there. It was like the threat. It was that like, Oh yeah, y'all want to see me do something stupid? Well, I'm just gonna end it all. Here's I'm gonna press that button, just end it all. Uh, and I think that's why I pushed the limit with drugs, and I pushed the limit with alcohol. Right. And I pushed the limits with sexual encounters, and taking big risks of where I would go when I was high. Uh, I think. No, I don't think. I know that. Deep inside, I was like, I don't know how to take my own life, so I'm going to put myself in a situation that will do it for me. Right. And and then I won't be sad anymore. How did your parents uh, react, your family react, when they had heard the news that you were gay? My dad thought it was a phase, which most dads do. Right. Um, we'll get you help. We'll do whatever we need to do. And I was like, okay. My mom was very hurt. My mom and I were, even though I, I was taken back to live with them, my mom didn't really speak to me for about a year. Wow. Um, it was very short. It was very limited. Um, she just, she was hurt. And it took me a while to realize, again, I said it earlier, she was hurt because I didn't trust her. Right. She could have been on my side um but i didn't let her and on one of some of my presentations when i talk to lgbt uh youth is if your parents are coming to you in a loving way and saying hey i'm here don't assume there's a negative motive for it right a secret agenda yeah, they're not trying to bait you um, because I thought that about my mom. Right. I just trying to get it out of me to then use it against me. And Well, I'm sure it's, it's tough. Cool. So much going on through your mind and you had been keeping it a secret for so long. Um, yeah. And it, it's, see, you... I can't uh, imagine how hurtful that must have been for you to deal with your mom, um, not speaking with you for a year because she was upset that you had hid it from her because she would have been able to support you seems like um it's a shame she just couldn't get herself to support you from that point on well eventually about a year later we had a a, a sit down when i started dating and we my mom wasn't a, much of a drinker but we used to like to play cards together and 
she basically made a date with me. She's like, are you, can you not go out whatever night that was and stay with me and play cards? And I was like, sure. And we, we were both big lovers of church's chicken. So we would get our church's chicken. We sat down at the table and she pulled out the bottle of rum and we had a couple of cocktails. <laughs> and I was 20, no, I was almost 20 at that time. And we had some cocktails. We had our church's chicken. We played cards. And she proceeded to ask me about gay life. And um, the, the I don't know how these are typical questions, but they seem typical to me. Like, okay, so in a relationship, are you the girl or the boy? <laughs> um, in sex, are you giving or are you receiving? Have you ever dressed in a dress? Don't ever dress in a dress. And she gave me all these motherly advice that she could, best that she could. Right. Uh, so after that, my mom became my confidant. So from 24 to about 35, 36, my mom was my confidant. And anything that happened in my life, I would tell her about. Oh, that's awesome. So we became very close after that. Yeah. My only regret is that my mom never got to see me get sober. Oh, uh, right. When, by the time I went into rehab, she was already uh, starting with Alzheimer's. Right. And you talk about something to add to depression and, and sadness. That's one of the things. Anytime I think about that, it just takes me to that space. Right. Um, where she never got to see me not drunk or high. Yeah. Yet she never i was i bet she knows i bet yeah i was gonna, I was gonna add that but she, yeah. she knew what uh when you were dealing with alcohol and drugs like can you give us a sense of just how bad it got um i started doing cocaine when i was 20 um that career lasted till i was 36 wow um i started drinking alcohol when i was about 15 and again, stopped when I was 36. Um, my drug use towards the end, I was a heavy crackhead. I did drugs almost daily. Um, I was a very functioning alcoholic and drug addict. So you were uh, still able to go to work and do it? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the days that I didn't do drugs before I went to work, I was a mess. People were like, what's wrong with you? And then they would send me home because they thought I was sick. And I'd go home and do drugs. Wow. And then I'd come back to work the next day, like, all better. And I was serving tables at the time. And I was a really fast <laughs> server. Uh, if anybody's ever done cocaine or crack. Right. You know what I'm um, but it got so bad. Um, there were times when I would be driving um somewhere at five o'clock in the morning to find more drugs. And I would go on the freeway at a hundred miles an hour and just hoping that my car would go off the cliff somewhere or skid or just crash. Um, I would do more drugs to see if I didn't wake up. Were you hanging out with a crowd that was way into drugs or were you doing this on your mm -hmm. own? Most of the time it was on my own. Uh -huh. Um, because I, I became a very selfish alcoholic and drug addict. I would not want to share. Because 
I knew that at some point it was just going to, I was going to just explode. Um, I lived alone during that time for a little while. And I was just, I just kept thinking that they would find me uh, dead in my apartment. And that's how I wanted to die. Did you ever literally like try to take enough drugs so that you would OD? Oh, every time. Really? Every time. I could do $100 worth of crack in one night and drink a whole bottle of tequila. And I would wake up and I would be mad and I would be very mad that I woke up and I would, I would, I would, I would talk to God the night before and say, if there's ever a time, this is the time. Just do it. Wow. Just, just do it. And I never really blacked out, but it, right in the middle of it, I even made packs like, okay, whatever demons here, like I just take me, just do it. I don't want to wake up tomorrow. I just didn't want to deal with the pain anymore. Yeah. I, I, I was, I, I was sad and I didn't have a relationship, obviously. And I didn't have a lot of friends because most of them had, uh, with all right, abandoned me. Um, all I did was pretty much go to work, come home, do drugs, and drink. Uh, to say the, to say that my dealer told me I had a problem, that's that should have been a sign. Right there. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. And, but I would sit in my apartment and and cry and and do drugs alone and and then of course in the midst of it you're wondering why don't I have a boyfriend and why am I so alone and but let me lock the doors because somebody's coming in so I can do another hit right yeah so at that time you were not getting any kind of help at all no therapy for depression nothing for the no nothing and I was even off my HIV meds at that time um, I just wanted it. I wanted to stop. I wanted life to stop. I want. I was ready to get off. Um, that, like I, I, I always thought when I was younger that I was only going to live till I was thirty. I'm like thirties old. By that time, I'm done. I would have done everything I needed to do. And then when I was diagnosed with AIDS, almost at thirty, I was like, oh, I was right. Here I am, about to die. And, and so you were still um, doing the drugs and alcohol at age 30 when you were diagnosed with HIV? Oh, I continued to do drugs after being diagnosed for another six years. Do you remember, I would imagine you probably do, the time that you were told you're HIV positive? Oh, yeah. I was in the hospital. I weighed 110 pounds and I was very sick. And they told my family, I later, later found out um, that they should start making plans because I wasn't going to make it. Wow. Yeah. Did you know that you were sick with HIV before they told you your diagnosis? Yeah. Okay. I knew. I knew what it was. Yeah. So it wasn't a big surprise. Uh, that didn't add to my sadness till years later. But... Um, at the time when I was sick, I was like, okay, so I'm 30 and I'm ready to die. The only reason that I know that there was something going on that I wasn't told 
is because a priest came to my room and uh, asked me if there's anything that I wanted to talk about. And I was like, like confess? And he was like, yes. And I was like, am I dying? And he was like, well, only God knows that. I'm like, well, when you have a, not, a note from God, come back. Otherwise, get the F out of my room. <laughs> and, and he was like, okay. Uh, years later, in fact, last year is when I interviewed my nephew, who was who's one of the older ones that remembers. He's the one that told me, and this is 15 years, 16 years later. He's like, they told us that you were dying. And that we need to start making preparations. Wow. And I was like, oh, well, look at that. And um, so, but I've nearly died almost about five times in my life. So that, even knowing that, added to my frustration. I was like, literally, Jesus, why don't you just take me? Like, I'm ready to go. When you got healthy again or at least got to get out of the hospital. Did you just hit the drugs and alcohol even harder now having the HIV diagnosis? Um, I couldn't at first cause I was too weak to walk. Okay. <laughs> but I laugh about it. People are thinking you're crazy, but as soon as I was able to go to the bar, I did. I was, I looked like a mess and I was still wanting to get high. I don't know. I guess in my head, I figured, Maybe now that I'm weaker, it'll take me. Maybe now that I don't have any defenses, uh, the drugs will do its job. Um, Did you ever have any trouble uh, with the law throughout your alcohol and, and drugs? You know, God bless that I never had problems with drugs or alcohol and the law. I had issues with driving too fast or <laughs> no, not paying tickets, but... The times that I, I ever got stopped, I never got a DUI or a DWI. Um, I, none of it. In fact, going to rehab was the first time that it was like made an issue. I was, uh, I had some trouble with the, with the former employer, long story, but I ended up in court. Um, and then ended up having to go to, uh, there was a warrant put out and I ended up going to jail and I was put on probation. Add to the frustration, depression, and anxiety. Uh, and I, for anybody who's ever gone through probation, you have to go and check in and they do a, a urine analysis you, uh, and a UA. And uh, so basically they're making sure that you're not dirty you know peeing dirty and every time i did i every time i went i did i would i would i had lost my car i'd almost lost my apartment i didn't have any friends but um the uh the last time right before i got in the taxi to go to my probation officer i was hitting the pipe and doing crack right before going to do a test oh yeah, no, but I, you know, there's, I think, I think I'm not unique in that aspect. I think a lot of people going through anxiety or depression or drug addiction, which can be very linked, um, 
we're looking for somebody to find us out. We want somebody to figure it out because we don't know what to do anymore. Right. At least I didn't. So I knew that my depression and my addiction were very linked together. Right. And nobody, and nobody, I couldn't save myself anymore. So I needed somebody to do it for me. And the guys that I was dating would end up doing drugs with me. So there was no saving them. I mean, I couldn't count on them to save me. But um, I think I knew that these guys at the probation office had a solution for me, something. And the supervisor there, Lana Parks, that was her name. And I thought she had the name of a, of a superhero. <laughs> Lana Parks is the one that called me out and said, either you go to rehab or you're going to go to jail. And she called the judge who didn't believe her. She thought I was just trying to get out of going to jail. So they, um, it was a Tuesday, I remember. They, I was supposed to go to court and present myself. And right before I left for court, I did drugs and I drank whiskey because my favorite alcohol was wild turkey. And I did like two, three shots before. Got there, I was high and drunk off my ass. And she thought I was the most insane person in the world. When the judge called my name and I was the first person on the docket, I went up and she's like, the judge says, Mr. Garza, what, why should I believe that you are uh, an alcoholic or a drug addict? And I started crying. And I said, judge, if you let me leave right now without sending me to rehab, I'm not coming back. And I was supposed to check in on Friday to either either one of the two. And she was like, why? Are you not going to come back? I said, no, I'm not going to make it. If I walk out this door right now and go home without either knowing that I'm going to jail or rehab, I'm not going to make it. I'm not coming back. I'm not going to be here tomorrow. And they were like, wow. And I'm bawling. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. It's it's very telenovela. It's a whole soap opera going on at the courthouse. And the judge goes, okay, we're going to send you to rehab. So I partied for three more days. And on Friday, I was at rehab. Wow. Yeah. So is this, uh, was that when you were 36? Yeah. Okay. So that's, that is how you first ended up in rehab. Yeah. And... God bless. 11 years later, I'm still clean and sober. Well, congratulations to you. And that's, uh, you. that is a powerful story. That's essentially you really screaming out for help saying, I really need this, you know, yeah. I need this or I will be dying. And I give you a lot of credit for standing in front of a judge, I guess, drunk and high, <laughs> um, <laughs> saying what, what you needed to say. <laughs> yeah. I'm not condoning that, <laughs> but it, it worked for me. But this is, you know, at 36, this is years, at least 20 years dealing with it and going, I don't know how to be happy. Yeah. And I'll be honest to, to this day, I, I, I don't know how to be authentically happy. I, I'm not miserable. Um, life is not horrible. And as I look at my, I'm, I'm sitting in my bedroom talking to you with my boyfriend next to me, and he's being so kind to watch 
TV on closed captioning while I'm recording. <laughs> but I'm looking around my room and I'm like, I have more clothes than I need. I have more stuff than I need on my bookshelves. Uh, I've got nephews visiting from Texas and we just had an amazing morning by the beach. And I'm like, life is so beautiful. But yet, yet in the back of my head somewhere, there's a little voice saying, oh, yeah, you have all this. But do you have this? And it's kind of like the, an evil version of the price is right <laughs> or or let's make a deal. Like you have the car, the boat, the trip, but <laughs> do you have this? And you're like, oh, I want that. What do I need to do? And then, and then, and then the announcer says, "You need to sell your soul." You're like, "Ah, fine, I'll do it." But that's still not enough. You know what I mean? So it's, it's still... like you always want more, no matter what you have. It's not enough. It's not good enough. You can be better. Yeah. You can have more. Yeah, and it, and it's it's not the material stuff. It's just that little bit inside of me that goes, "You don't have that because you don't deserve it. Ah, you have right. you haven't worked enough." You haven't done enough. I, I was, uh, and here's a small example. I was featured in a magazine on one of their stories on the paper version. And then I was on their website. This was January. And then mid-year, they put out a best of the last six months. And I was in that. Sweet. And then towards, yeah, yeah, Right. And then towards the middle, they were like, hey, at the end of every magazine, there's that before the cover, the last page where we quote somebody in the HIV advocacy community. Like, we'd like to quote you. Can you give us a quote? So I'm on the middle. I'm on the end. I'm on the website. Am I happy? No, because I don't have the cover. Uh. So I'm not, I'm not good enough for the cover. And you would have seen, you would have thought that I just lost the puppy because I was like, I'm so horrible. I'm, I'm good enough for the back, but I'm not good enough for the front. What am I doing wrong? What is missing? And oddly enough, that day, the editor of the magazine, who's a friend of mine, wrote me and we were chatting online and I made a, a, a comment about it and he's like, you get there. We, we just have other stories. It's not that you're not good enough. It's like you're, you'll get there. Like, don't, don't worry about what we're doing. Yeah. You got to quit, quit beating yourself up and quit comparing. Yeah. It's like, you're doing a great job. Just enjoy it. And I'm like, I, I wish I knew how. And uh, funny enough too, is that I have a vision board that it's completed. I don't know if people do know about vision boards, but you put everything on there that you want to manifest in your life. And I've had it for six years and everything on the board is completed. Uh, but Christian mentioned one this morning that says we've got more work to do. And I'm like, I wonder if that's just my subconscious, my depression thinking there's always something else I could do. There's always something else you can do to be better. Um, I don't know. Can you tell us a little bit what it was like when you finally did get to rehab? So I go to rehab. Um, there are 28 people in the house, 
29 with me. Uh, I am the only out gay man, because I believe there are other gay guys. Uh, I'm 36, gay, HIV positive. Uh, I believe at that time it was the only Hispanic. Only person and, of color? Uh, no, Hispanic guy. There were other... Uh, I think there was a couple of uh, black guys, and okay. I think there was a uh, Middle Eastern guy. Okay. I think. I was a little not there yet <laughs> when I went. Yeah, only uh, men? All men, yes. And for the first time, I felt like I was home. I walked in, and they were all welcome, welcome. Uh, I went and sat on the couch, and I do remember um, I was reading Roseanne Barr's biography at the time, and they confiscated I wasn't allowed to read anything other than 12-step or AA or spiritual stuff. And I sat on the couch, and I remember just... The big sigh and I was like I'm home like I'm home was there a period where you had to get clean like you mentioned prior yeah. to going you spent three days of drinking before going into rehab so did you show up a, a total mess and and it, was there a period of time where you had to deal with this drying out period that was uh, I would imagine really challenging you know I got to see people who went into detox mode I I didn't um it took me about three days to completely like break down, but I was I got there on a Friday, so the weekend was pretty mellow. Saturdays and Sundays you were pretty much on your own to do whatever you wanted to do. So I just got to sleep a lot. I got to sleep it off without having any pressure. But then on Monday, when we would do house chores, and this is during the summer, I went in on June twenty first. Um. I started breaking down because it was hot and I was running around and no alcohol and no drugs. And uh, I remember hiding in a closet and crying. It was a mixture of, I can't believe I'm here, exclamation point, And I can't believe I'm here, period. Does that make sense? I think so. Say more. Um, I couldn't believe that my life had gotten me to rehab. I couldn't believe that I didn't have any more control over my life. I couldn't believe that I was so sad and miserable that I was finding more and more ways to hurt myself. Then, on the other side of the coin, I couldn't believe that I was finally somewhere where there were more people like me. Yeah. That by the conversations that I had over the weekend, some of the other guys were hurting and were going through their own issues. And we're dealing with their own pains. And I couldn't believe I was finally somewhere surrounded by people who weren't going to judge me. Right. Who just understood. So I can't believe I'm here, exclamation point. Yep. I can't believe I'm here, period. Yeah, now that makes a lot of sense. Was the detox piece at all like... You know, I hear some horror stories, essentially, especially if you don't have any medications to help you through that drying out period. I mean, was there physical pain? Was there sweats, headaches, dizziness? What, what was that like? Well, remember that I, I was coming from HIV, too. So HIV already brings a lot of 
headaches and sometimes the medication is makes you nauseous. Right. Um, and so I, I think that's what made it easier that there was no like, okay, this is headache from HIV and this is headache from detoxing. It right. was all a headache. This is nausea. You know, there was no labels on the nausea. It's just you're nauseous, period. Which has made, I think, every time I've gotten sick about from something somewhat easier because I've suffered from headaches and nausea, constipation or diarrhea or neuropathy or aches and pains, joint problems. There's always something that's been hurting. So every transition into a new sickness has been the trauma is the hearing it, not the feeling it. Right. Does that make sense? Yep, absolutely. How long were you in rehab and did you experience any relapses? No, I I was in rehab for three months. So I went in June 21st and I got out June 23rd. I mean, I'm sorry, August 23rd. Uh, and God bless, no. I've stayed clean and sober uh, all in one. That's fantastic. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Um, what's it like just out of curiosity? Like, are you able to walk into a bar and hang out with someone and have a soda or do you stay away from everywhere that serves liquor? Uh, I'm cool. It almost sounds like a joke. Gay guy walks into the bar. Um, (laughs) but, uh, no, I have friends that drink. Um, I've had friends at my place that drink, uh, Christian and I can go out to dinner and he'll have a cocktail and I don't mind it. I'll do, I'll do the occasional non-alcoholic beer because yep. you can't have a steak without the taste of a beer. Right. I'm, I'm a Texan. I'm a Texan. You got it. <laughs> uh, but other than that, then saying, oh, now I've had a, a, a non-alcoholic, like I want a shot. No, I've even sat at, at the bar when, because I'm an actor too. So I've been out with friends and they're like, oh, let's do a shot. And, you know, they'll put the shots on the table and you just hand it over to your neighbor. Like, here you go. Drink that for me. Right. Um, I'm, over, I'm also, I would think, very spiritual. And um, I, I'm a Reiki master and I practice uh, card readings and uh, energy work. And I know that that's a gift. And I know that God and the universe uh, have granted me that gift. And I also know that if I abuse my body again, they can take it away. And I don't know if I got to read cards for you. Did I get to You did not. I was just going to point that out. I really missed oh, out okay. on that piece. So next time I get the opportunity to see you again, I'm going to make sure you read yeah, some cards or read my energy or whatever you can do. I'd love that. We will, we'll have to coordinate that. And we can actually do that over the phone too. So oh, we'll have sweet. To it could be we'll a whole nother podcast. Yes. Yes, we can do that. <laughs> Hey, so um, let's step up a little bit ahead. And age 45, you were diagnosed with anal cancer, correct? Yeah. And that was a pain in the butt. Yeah. What, uh, <laughs> I mean, how did you find that out? And, and how were you able to deal with that type of diagnosis? And did and I'm, I think you had even mentioned that you went into more of a depressed state after that. Yeah. Yeah. Um... So I I, um, I first had a hernia, and we I, I got very bloated, 
over the fall and, and winter of 2014. And I didn't know what was going on because I wasn't eating a whole lot, but I was getting very bloated and fat. Now, like something is not right. And then I had the hernia surgery and that's what we thought was going on. It's like, okay, that's, that's, we're good. That's going to happen. That's going to take care of it. It didn't happen that way. Um, I still was not able to, basically I wasn't able to go to the bathroom and I still wasn't able to go. So I go to my doctor and they sent me to a specialist and no, let me rewind. So they do the hernia surgery and I go to my, to my hernia um, checkup and I'm still bloated. I still can't go to the bathroom. And the doctor says, well, it's probably medication that you're taking, which I didn't take. And he's like, oh, so they do this finger check, right? And uh, there's no other way to put that one. They do the finger check right. and, and uh, the doctor's like, oh, I can feel a mask there. He's like, something's going on. And I'm like, uh, I'm going to send you back to your doctor and uh, see what he says. I'm like, okay. So I go back to my primary doctor. He does the finger too. And he's like, oh, yes, I can feel that. So I'm going to send you to a colorectal doctor to have him check you. So I'm like, okay. So I finally go to the colorectal doctor. These are three doctors doing the finger test at this point. Are you kind of freaking out? Like, Oh no, what, this is going to be awful. Or are you just thinking, ah, just much typical to a functioning depressive person. I'm going, I'm trying to make light of it and make a joke out of it and not worry about it. Right. Cause I'm like, I'm already, I already worry and stress about things as it is. I don't want to add to it. So my joke by the end of the third doctor was like, I've had more hands up my butt than a Muppet. That was my <laughs> joke. And uh, I go to the third doctor, he's the check, and uh, he's like, I can feel it, we're going to do a colonoscopy. And they do it. I wasn't going to get my results to, to like a following Tuesday or something. And this was on, on Cinco de Mayo, and I, this is another joke. I tell people that I take my illnesses so seriously that, I, that even my diagnosis are on holidays. So <laughs> I went to my doctor for my diagnosis on Cinco de Mayo, 5th of May. And uh, we were going to go celebrate somewhere with some friends or something. But we ended up going to the doctor's office and he's like, uh, you have cancer. You have anal cancer. And uh, I was trying to be strong. I started crying a little bit. I was more concerned about Christian. Like, uh because I even told him, like, if you want to leave, if you want to break up, I totally understand. But if you're going to do it, you need to do it now. I don't want you around it. If you're not going to be part of this, just leave. And he was like, no, I'm part of it. Uh, the one thing that I had, and this uh, this was one thing that we both agreed on, is that the doctor, Dr. Bobby Rad, here in, in, in Newport Beach, if anybody's out here, he's the best. Um he got up from the chair, grabbed my shoulder, and looked at me in the eyes and said, look at me. We got this. We got this. And, and, and that made me feel like we were in it together. And I was like, this is awesome. This uh, that is sounds cool. like, yeah, that sounds fantastic. And um, so on the way home, at this point, 
I've, I've been practicing my spirituality for a little while. I've been on social media for a while. I've gotten a good following with my podcast. I'm not about to hide because of cancer. I was like, it's not going to, it's not going to, I'm not going to be just cancer. I'm, cancer is going to be part of my life. Just like sexuality was part of my life, I wasn't, it wasn't Daniel, you know, gay guy Daniel. It was Daniel who is gay. Daniel who happens to be HIV positive. So Daniel who is clean and sober, because I've never hidden it either. So Daniel who has cancer, and then, you know, it, I have it. It doesn't have me. Does that make sense? Yeah, very much so. And you were uh, not gonna, going to let cancer define you. No, because I knew that I already had this... I always lived on the edge of this ditch that was depression that could take me down. And I knew that if I, if I got, if I went into that slippery slope, I was going to fall into it. And I've seen a lot of people not come out. So we were, we, we, and I say we, cause it was not just me. It was Christian and the doctors and my family. We were not going to go into that ditch. So on the way home, I looked at Christian and I go, he was driving. I'm like, I'm going to start a video blog. And I'm going to start it today. From today on, I'm going to tell people how I'm feeling on a daily basis. And um, we we did. I started a blog. I did it for 30 days and told people how I felt without hiding. Because I think that's part of my depression. That's part of his sneakiness. Is He waits for me to hide things. He waits for me to keep things away from people. To have secrets. So that I can feel ashamed or embarrassed or whatever you want to fill in the blank with uh, about it. Does that make sense? Yeah, very much so. I think oftentimes with depression and chronic illnesses, there is this piece of shame, especially with the mental illness piece of it, I think. There's this shame. I mean, I certainly had pieces of shame, and I wrote about it in my blog recently. And I think I was going through a ton of shame that, I didn't even really realize was shame at the time until I look back at it and go, whoa, that was some obvious shame. You know, walking into the pharmacy, like looking around and walking throughout the whole store, making sure there were no neighbors there before I go to the counter to get my antidepressant. Like, that's clearly shame. Yeah. And um, so I was not going to be embarrassed. I was not going to hide it. And if anybody goes to my YouTube page and sees the videos, the cancer videos, you'll see that through it, there are some of those videos where I'm, I'm just not holding back is full on tears and boogers and, uh, spit coming out of my mouth. I am mad. Tears, boogers, and spit. What, what an advertisement for your YouTube channel. (laughs) It's awesome, Daniel. (laughs) No, that's really cool, though, to to make yourself so vulnerable, right? And to put that out there is not easy. So I give you a lot of credit, and I think you're right. Like, what a way to fight against the depression. Put it out there and share it and quit hiding it. And I think, you know, that's why I do the podcast, so people can share their stories. I think the more we talk about it, the more we share our stories, the more we chip away at the stigma. Yeah, and that's what I did. I was like, I'm not. It's not going to happen. Cancer is not going to win out. And there was a lot of complications. There were a lot of sad nights. 
Um, uh, some of the complications were uh, caused me to have to shower three, four, seven times a day. Uh, and sometimes by the end of the night, I was exhausted and I was mad and I was sad and I would yell. And one such night, I told Christian, I don't want to wake up tomorrow and just grab a pillow and, and kill me and I'll write a note and I'll tell everybody that I told you to and I gave you permission to kill me. And Christian was like, that's not how this works. Like, it's, that's, <laughs> that's not going to happen. Like, take your, here's some Motrin, go to sleep. Uh, and <laughs> take two aspirins and call me in the morning. Um, but for anybody who wants to see the pictures, there's pictures out there too and uh, of my journey through cancer. And I lost my hair and I got to 123 pounds. And I used a wheelchair for a couple of days. And I was like, no, you're not going to win. I have enough on my, you know, I have enough in my head to keep me busy without cancer. Like, no, you're not going to win. Uh, and then the stoma came around, the conversation. And I really, that really put me over. I, I was not happy. Um, how... How could the world, how could God, how could the universe allow that to happen? Hadn't I been through enough and now there's going to be a hole in my belly? I had to wear a bag for the rest of my life? Like, no. And that caused some depression. I went through some really heavy moments. So is that a colostomy bag that you're referring to? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that, um, so a tube into your stomach and that was due to the cancer. And I think I would expect that that would be super challenging. So that added to depression. Yeah. Cause I didn't, I, I didn't want it, but uh, much to, you know, I talked to myself and I'm like, Garza, you, you're not going to hide this. This is not, this is not a negotiation on the day of my surgery, I guess two hours after my surgery, uh, Chris is shaking his head. Yes. Two hours after my surgery, when I woke up, I first thing I did was ask for my phone. And again, it's on YouTube. If you go and check it out, there's wow. a. Uh, I, I'm really plugging my YouTube, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, it's um, great. But if you go to the YouTube, there is a video of my colostomy surgery. Well, not the surgery, but two hours after I woke up, there's a video of me talking um, into the phone and. Uh, like, hey guys, <laughs> uh, there's some crazy things out there. But I did uh, another 30 day videos of my journey wow. in getting adjusted with my colostomy. Uh, That's fantastic. Being very honest about it, because I was like, uh, there were, I guess I went through about six months maybe of really heavy depression, anxiety from the colostomy, because I wasn't really driving. I wasn't driving after that. Were you seeing and a therapist I, at the time? No. No therapist, no medications or anything for depression? No, nothing. Um, was there a reason to not address the depression? I mean, you were clearly sharing everything on YouTube. Um, did you um, feel like you were handling the depression on your own? Or Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. totally. I got this. I got this. But there hadn't been anything overly 
traumatic to push me to a point where I couldn't handle it. Again, I was uh, a functioning depressor. Have you ever seen this. a therapist or a... Or... Yes, I had. And for, okay. I, I saw a therapist when I was... Uh, when I was young and coming out, I saw a therapist when I was newly diagnosed. Uh, I saw a therapist after getting sober. Okay. Uh, so and you're I certainly therapist... not opposed to, to a therapist. No, no, no. And I, I, and I've been to therapy throughout the years for several different things. Right. And, um, but during, during cancer and ostomy surgery, there were only a couple of visits and they were only because it was kind of like, we want to see how you're doing. And I was like, okay, I'm fine. I'm good. I got this. Don't worry. And, but then when, uh, when I couldn't drive and I couldn't work and I was pretty much staying home all the time, which is very much against who I am, I was miserable and I would spend the days on the couch playing Candy Crush and watching killer shows, <laughs> anything that had some kind of like, you know, the show snapped or I almost got away with it or evil among us or something some, that some had high quality be- TV. I hear you saying, yes. Oh, you, oh yeah. <laughs> I was, I was one degree away from reality shows, um, but I wasn't quite that depressed yet. <laughs> so, right. Uh, but anything that had to do with murders and killings, I was watching it. And playing Candy Crush and drinking lots of coffee and eating cookies and barely eating anything else at all. Um, and I was sad. And I, and I wanted to be sad. And I thought, I deserve to be miserable. I, des- I deserve this. This, is, this. I've earned this sadness because my body is a wreck. I'm breaking down. And I'm just sitting here waiting for God to come and say, well, we've done all the damage we could with you. It's time to go. And I was ready. I'm like, you know, just come and take me. And I figured what more of a novella than to find me all, de- you know, he was depressed his last years of life. No wonder he died. You know, the more martyr, martyr of you can make me, the better. So you, and, you made it sound like it was about six months or so of depression after the surgery. What, how were you finally able to pull yourself out of it? Um, I started to get called work again and I I needed to get out and I was like I can't I can't <sighs> one of the most beautiful things that happened to me very early on when I moved to Laguna after my first after my breakup from that boyfriend was I went down to the beach and I if anybody who knows Laguna Beach it's full of tourists and there's a lot of international tourists and you can sit there for hours and not hear a word of English because everybody is a tourist. And that made me realize nine years ago that I lived in a beautiful place and I was being stupid for sitting in my apartment for the whole time. I did that again. I forced myself to get in the shower, walk down to the beach and, and sit there, just sit there and listen. And it made me realize, like, you're not dead. We've be- we've dealt with things like this before. You need to get to it. You need to get back to it. You need to start recording again. You need to start doing interviews. You need to draw and start doing presentations. Do all the things that fill in the space so that you don't fall into that ditch. 
Because I was not, I mean, I was already on the slippery slope of the ditch. Right. Like, you know, like I was already like figuring out the best and easiest ways to fall into it. And I, 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 one of the things that I was taught in a therapy session many years ago was the outside the box concept. It's like for a minute, step outside the box and look at yourself. And if you were your best friend, what would you say to you? And I was like, Garza, you're being a little shit. Get over yourself because your path in life is not to be pitiful. It is to go out and educate and talk to people and hear stories and share stories. That's your purpose. So stop being a baby and sitting on the couch and go do something with your life. Yeah, I was just going to say you found your purpose again, right? Like having a purpose is so huge. And uh, which is why I continue to do my podcast and I find new things to create and I find new ways to fill my time because I, I don't, I, I enjoy being alone. I don't mind the loneliness that comes with it sometimes, but I'm not, I'm not married to it. And I, I, I can figure out a way to pull myself out of it. And, um, uh, I can talk myself into doing something other than hiding. I'm pretty tired of, making myself feel like I'm not worth it. Right. That's a good thing to get tired of. I'm, I'm over putting myself down. Uh, when everybody around me tries to lift me up, you know how they say, uh, like when people are being arrested and from, and they're like, just weigh yourself down, just make yourself limp. And I, I, that's what I do. People yeah. try to lift me up and, and I, I, I'm making myself heavy, like, no. <laughs> and part of it, too, is learning to say yes, to say thank you, to say, yes, I am. I appreciate for you noticing. Right. You know, compliment you and stuff. And, you're, and we all do that. We normally all do that. Like, oh, no, it was nothing. I, you know what? Yeah, it was something. You know what? Putting on a presentation or a summit at a conference for podcasting, yeah, that was something. That was kick-ass. I absolutely, kicked absolutely. I'm glad you say that, and I'm glad you're proud of it. And and that wasn't the only presentation for you. I mean, you were up on stage several times that conference. And yeah. uh, and I do have to say, you know, the the mask of depression. I don't know. Like sometimes you, the way you talk about yourself and isolating and so forth. When I met you, I mean. And you've talked about this as well, like through your high school days and stuff like you're very outgoing. You're very friendly. You're very I mean, I think you have this incredible positive energy about you that people want to surround themselves with you. But and I've learned that that's my uh, my lifesaver. Uh, instead of looking at it as some kind of punishment for having to be out there in order to not. It's like it's my lifesaver. My lifesaver is to not isolate when I don't have to, yeah. to be out in public, to put out. Um, how many times have we met somebody that we know are going through some forms of depression or anxiety or social anxiety or you name it. And the moment that they get out, their first words are, I don't want to be here. Well, I can't stand the crowds or blah, blah, blah. You know, 
fill in the blanks again. I just chose to not have to say that. I, I already know that. I, you don't need to know that. I know that. I know that it, it's probably overwhelming to be in a room with 200 people. I know that. But you, person standing in front of me, you don't need to know that. Right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use you as a lifesaver. Tell me about your day. Tell me what's going on with your life. Because if you ask me, I probably tell you I am super anxious right now that I want to puke and I'd rather run to my room and hide and watch TV in the dark. That's what I really want to do. But what I'm going to do is take my time and step get my 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 fears and my anxiety and my ego out of the way and listen to you. What's going on with you? Right. Now, I may not always pay attention to everything because <laughs> I'm <laughs> Because I'm still thinking about me a little bit, but I will try my best. And and sometimes people say things that trigger my own anxieties, and I have to step away. That's also a lifesaver. Like you don't say anything, but you're like, you know what? I'll be right back because <laughs> I don't want to hear about your negativity right now because it's going to pull me into my negativity. Yeah. And then now now we're two negative Nellies sitting with each other. That's not fun. Right. Well, that's some good self-care and knowing yourself well, right? Knowing when to pull yourself away from something yeah. like that that's going to pull you down. Exactly. But for, I mean, a lot of times, I mean, you guys are doing a lot more for me than you think you are. It's like, uh, yeah, let me go listen to you. Let me go have a cup of coffee with you. Let me go down to the you know, hotel bar and, and sit with you guys and just listen. Just listen just to get me out of my room so that I'm not there isolating. And then I start wondering why I'm not invited to the circle. Right. You know, because we can do that. I, it's so easy to do that. Oh, I don't want to be in the middle of the crowd, so I'm going to go home or to my room or whatever. And then once I'm alone, I will crucify myself because I'm not good enough to be invited to that circle that everybody was invited to, but I wasn't given a specific special invitation so therefore, I am not worthy of it. So I must be a really horrible person. Ugh. Isn't it a civ? It's, it's a vicious circle. Yeah. It's a vicious circle. Definitely got to stop those thoughts. So, yeah. you know, you shared with us um, a lot of the YouTube stuff. First of all, how can people get to that YouTube? Do they just go oh, to YouTube uh, and then Google uh, search for you? Yeah, yeah. All you have to do is go look for Daniel G. Garza and you can find me. Uh, that's the easiest way. Or uh, you can go to my uh, personal page, or my uh, which is Daniel G Garza, or my Little Mexican Productions page, uh, which has a link to everything that you want to find. Yeah, and what's that website? Uh, well, that's on Facebook. Almost okay. almost all my stuff is on Facebook. So you can go to Little Mexican Productions, L I L M E S I C A N Productions. Uh, and from there, you can find my uh, HIV. These are all on Facebook. You can find my HIV Positive Life page, which is all about HIV uh, education. You can find my Spanish page, which is called Mira Mira, which is all Spanish information. Um, there is my Put It Together podcast page, where you can find a link to the uh, website, or you can listen to the shows from there. There's also some videos uh, but everything is linked in one way or another. So if you look for me 
you can find me. Just look up Daniel G. Garza. So that's awesome. I want to hear a little bit more about your podcast and some of the other pages that you mentioned um, and your advocacy work. Sure. So um, I've been an HIV advocate for about 16 years now. My focus is on education. So I primarily go to places that want information or education on HIV, be it um, uh, high schools, colleges, universities. I do rehabs also, um, companies, uh, organizations like churches or schools that want to know more about HIV and AIDS. So I will go and present uh, and do Q&As. That's my advocacy work. Uh, as far as my podcast, it's called Put It Together. And the show is about people. It's about folks. I want to know where folks came from, where they are now, and what the journey was like. Um, good, bad, hard, easy, um, happy, sad. I think that we all have a story to share. And every story inspires somebody else to do something with their lives. So however minimal you think your life has been or insignificant, somebody else can benefit from your story. So I invite folks to come to my show and just tell us how they put it together. Um, and that's the, the show and that. And then um, my Spanish show, I invite Spanish-speaking uh, folks, uh, whatever their background, to also come and talk about their journey, whether it be coming to this country, uh, becoming professionals, or doing something with their lives. Um, and it's called Mira Mira, and it's it basically it translates to look, look, like look, look what this person is doing with their lives. Um, and those are the main things that I'm doing right now. That's fantastic. With your um, Mila Mila show, are you talking at all about the whole uh, immigration piece in our country at this point, or do you stay we away have from not. that? Yeah, we. I try to stay away from the politics because then it becomes sometimes just an argument. Right. Uh, I'm more interested as far as put it together and mira mira. It's about the journey. It's how you got to where you are. Yeah, that's really cool. Where you came from and what you've learned, because we can all use a little help in learning some lessons sometimes. Absolutely. Do you have uh, one or two favorite uh, guests or stories that you could uh, highlight for us? Um, let's see, uh, put it together has been on the air for six years and I've done over 200 episodes. Wow. That's fantastic. In the 200 episodes, I would say that one of my favorites, I have two favorites from put it together. One was a panel show. There were four of us and we were talking about, um, political correctness in the country. And there were two females, two males, um, uh, an actual African-American lady who was born in Africa and lives, no, whose mom is African and she is born here. Uh, a girl who like days before thought she was just Irish and find out she was Mexican Irish. Uh, me who I'm Mexican American and Christian, my boyfriend, who um, has a mixed background, he's adopted, so there's a mixture of biological. So he's one-third Hawaiian, one-third Mexican, one-third white, and then adopted by a Puerto Rican dad and a German mother. Wow. So 
yeah, so, so the four of us are sitting at the table, and the show is about political correctness, and it got all kinds out of hand. It was beautiful. Uh, and then we did another show about entitlement, uh, which were two, two white guys, and again, Christian and I, and it got really awesome. <laughs> uh, and... As far as personal stories, I don't think that I can pinpoint anything in particular, but if I may be so, uh, I guess, humble, uh, the pilot episode, the first episode, which is my story, uh, I think would be my favorite because that's what's got me the show. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, so if you go back to 2012, January 2012, and hear that very first episode uh, way before cancer... And then you listen to me now. It, it is uh, that is my put it together story, and I I think it's time for me to do a, another version of my own story at some point. Oh, I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Wow. Cool. That's awesome. Um, love to hear about it. We'll definitely have to check it out. I do. Uh, I want to ask you. You know, before we part ways, I want to ask you uh, what advice you have. For somebody who currently may be struggling with depression now, words of hope or... Um... Words of wisdom, yeah. as I call it. And on my show, we have a moment called Words of Wisdom, where all my guests share whatever wisdom they want to. So... Um, words of wisdom, I, I may, like that. If I may, in honor of my Put It Together show, my words of wisdom to somebody going through depression is... What kind of, I don't even have wisdom. Um, you are loaded with wisdom. I'm just asking you to share a little bit of it. Now. <laughs> um, okay, this is going to sound harsh, but this is how it, what works for me. My words of wisdom is for, first is get your ass off the couch. Yeah. I don't care. How, I don't care how you feel. Happy, sad, miserable, whatever. Get off the couch. Get in the shower. And put on something really pretty and get out the door. No matter how you feel. Because right from the moment you start making your outside feel better, your inside is, is bound to follow along. I know a lot of people say, oh, if you're happy inside, the outside doesn't matter. No, no, no. Think of a peacock. A peacock has beautiful feathers <laughs> on the outside. And that's what makes people look at them. That will make you... People will notice you. People will, you will shine and that will attract people. Light equal, light attracts light. So even, you know, the, the whole fake it till you make it, it's true. I've, I've done that. I put myself out there and said, I'm going to do the best I can with what I have right now. And I'm going to put the best I have out there regardless. Stop talking to people about, how sad you feel, how miserable life is, what hurts, just for a little while. People on the street, your friends, they're not the therapists. They don't want to know about that most of the times. They have their own issues to deal with. So leave that at home for a little bit. Go out with your best outfit. Take yourself out to dinner if you have to. Go out to a movie. Buy yourself the nachos, the popcorn, and the icy. And treat yourself like you're the most wonderful person in the world. And then you're going to start realizing what that feels like. And you'll want it from other people. That's what worked for me. Because I needed to feel better about myself. I was, 
I was so used to and knew so well how to feel bad about myself that I needed to know what good felt like. And, that, and that's how I started. It was like, I don't want to do this, but damn it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I think that is great advice. My life is so worth it and I need to do it. Um, It's, it's really, and I've been on the receiving end of it and I've been on the giving end of it. Uh, And I mean, the, the harsh stories, the, you know, it, I live near LA. People don't really mean all the time. How are you doing? It's it's just a passing question. Right, right. You know, I so, want to I want to reiterate when you say that it might sound like harsh advice. I can understand how if you are the one on the couch now dealing with depression, I can understand how it does sound harsh, but man, there is a lot of wisdom to that piece of advice because you do have to get off the couch and you do have to take some, you don't have to take responsibility for being sick and having no. a, a dep- having depression or a mental illness, but you do have to take responsibility in dealing with it. And it does take effort and it takes time yeah. and it sounds yeah, harsh at don't. the time, but get off the couch. Yeah. And for me, what didn't work was stop. I, I, I had to stop listening to those people that were like, if you go work out, you'll feel better. If you change your diet, it'll be great. Right. If you uh, and I'd be like, if you just shut up, I don't have to <laughs> listen to you. Um, you know what? In the beginning, it's hard and it's tough, and I I get it. I used to sit, and I know we have to go, but I used to, I used to sit with my laptop, my tablet, my Surface, and my phone all on Candy Crush with a cup of coffee and I would finish lives at one end and I would go back to the first tablet again. And that was my day that coffee and cookies and killer shells. That was my day. <laughs> and I, yeah, I think about it now. I'm like, oh my God, Daniel, like, how did you pull that off? But until I finally smelled myself and it wasn't just the body funk, it was the spiritual funk. It was like, how, like, why would your boyfriend want to come visit you like that? Who wants to be around you like that? Like it makes no sense. So get your butt in the shower, shave that three-week beard, which I really don't grow, um, <laughs> and and put on some deodorant and feel better about yourself. You don't have to go work out, but I did go out and get me some a survey and sit by the beach and. And I did it at my pace, and I did it the way that I thought it was better for me, and that worked. Again, they're just suggestions. They're, it's not advice. Only your doctors can advise you. It's just a suggestion. Get yourself something nice. I like to go shopping at Old Navy, but <laughs> to each his own. <laughs> Let me tell you, that clearance rack has seen me cry a couple of times, but I always came out with a T-shirt. Um you know, whatever works for you, but uh, yeah, tough love. Like your stinky butt on the couch. Why, if you can't stand yourself, why do we? No, that's not the way we want to be your friend. So yeah. get your butt off the couch and treat yourself better, and then we'll treat you better, and then we can all talk about it. All right, sounds good, Daniel. I want to thank you 
a lot for all of your time. I want to thank you for sharing your story. You have been through a great deal, and you're a huge inspiration for many. I want you to know that. I think you you do know it, but you don't acknowledge it enough, I bet. Um, You're a huge (laughs) inspiration to so many people. And uh, thank you again for your time. Thank you for your advocacy, and make sure you stay healthy. I will try. Thank you so much for giving me the time. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text to 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you're a man who has experienced depression and would like to be interviewed for the show, please reach out to me on Twitter at AlLevin18. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files. <laughs>